In this episode of Dear Future CRO, Larry Satterfield, retired CRO, investor, and startup advisor, shares about his sales experience across multiple organizations varying in size. He also shares about his enthusiasm for sales training and the importance of data-backed, metric-driven success. Hi, welcome to the pop-up podcast, Dear Future CRO, brought to you by Hunters and Unicorns, presented by the CEO and founder of GrowthQ, Esther Iyamu, and me, Kieran Bajar of Culture Crunch. We talk about leadership and its key pillars, including mentorship, sponsorship, and diversity. Today, we're thrilled to be joined by sales legend, Larry Satterfield. Larry has been known across the industry for successfully leading both large and small high-performance sales organizations that achieve strong revenue growth over his career, including four exits across companies like Jazz Networks, Cisco, Dell, and Nortel. Larry has solidified the science behind sales growth and competitiveness, currently coaching CEOs and CROs across the industry. Most importantly, Larry has always had a philosophy of lift as you climb, as he consistently creates opportunities and sponsors the next generation of future revenue leaders to shine. Larry, welcome. Thank you for having me. We are so, so glad you joined us. Um, Gosh, we have so much to chat about um, in this session. I'm so excited. First off, We've all, the industry has watched your career, um, but no one knows it better than you, Larry. So can you share your career journey from your perspective? And can you tell us how you got into sales and then why did you stay? Yeah, I sure can. Um, I actually have been in sales now for about 40 years. About 30 of those years have been in uh, sales leadership roles. But the first 10 years, I was just a, a seller. Uh, trying to make a living and trying to earn a whole lot of commission. Um, I got into sales totally by accident. Uh, you know, um, in the late seventies, early eighties, I needed a job. There were jobs in sales, uh, selling books and selling insurance. And so I just took, I took both those jobs. I took it during the day. I was selling insurance and at night I was selling books. And um, so it was totally by accident. It was the first job I could get to start to make some money. I was a young man trying to be on his own. Uh, what was interesting is that uh, from the, the minute I first started selling, I knew it was going to be something that I would continue to do. Um, I started selling books and it was a more scripted sale. I, I'm going to date myself. There was this thing called Time Life Libraries back when you had books and you went to encyclopedias for information and uh, you sold them on the phone and it was very scripted. And to me, having a script that I could use that helped me handle objections and helped me uh, talk about the benefits of a, a, a potential uh, sale that I was making was great, made it easy. And so I just followed the script. And uh, back in those days, there was a bell that you rang every time you made a sale. And I just thought that was crazy fun. And uh, plus you got paid commission every time you sold, sold something. So that's what I really got into. When I sold insurance, that's where I really learned that, you know, sales was a process. 
I worked for a company called Liberty Mutual Insurance Company at the time. And um, they sent you off for, believe it or not, for like six weeks of training when you first joined them. And uh, it was that Xerox solution selling type training. And I really learned about how you probe, how you close, how you, you know, talk about benefits and uh, features of the solution that you're selling and and how to listen to customers. And so that was very, very good. So that started my sales career. And then I was fortunate enough to uh, join Bell Atlantic. And that got me into tech sales. Uh, back then it was called telecommunications. Now it's it went to unified communications, video, collaboration, a lot of different names, but really all selling the, kind of the same thing. And so that was telecommunications. I left Bell Atlantic after a really good career with them. Um, I you know got to director level uh, with Bell Atlantic and I left to join Nortel as a vice president. Um, Nortel was where I really experienced the first exit. I was with a division of Nortel and uh, I was running their New York office and um, we really were doing well. And um, at the time Nortel decided to take advantage of the revenue growth that, we, that they were seeing from this division and sell it to one of their partners and they sold it to Williams Communications. So that was the first time I was a part of an organization that got sold. Um, and that was exciting. So I found, you know, early on and, and, you know, we're talking in the, you know, mid nineties when that actually took place. So that was early on in my career. And, um, I worked for Williams Communication. Um, we, uh, we had a business that exit wasn't as, fun as the Nortel exit <laughs> because, you know, Williams had decided that they were going to continue with their pipeline business. And so uh, they, they no longer wanted to be in the communications business. And so they sold us to a private equity. So it wasn't as fun, wasn't as fancy and wasn't as lucrative, but it was an exit. <laughs> um, and from there, um, my career, I, I left Williams uh, after we made that sale, went to Dell, worked very at five years at Dell, some hard five years. Um, I experienced some ups and downs there. I uh, got promoted, actually got demoted for the first time in my life. And a lot of people don't understand that that can happen to you when you're in the sales environment. But with a, a lot of, some good lessons learned there. I had five, what I would call the most difficult sales years of my life. I had a bunch of success early on and then I had didn't have so much success later in that. And so my position was if I couldn't be great at it, I needed to leave. And so um, I left there and joined a company called Tanberg, which at the time was the um, uh, leading video conferencing company in the country, in, in the globe, around the globe. And um, I guess it was competition between Polycom and Tanberg at the time. And uh, did very well at Tanberg and had the next exit Tamburg was acquired by Cisco. Um, I worked for Cisco for a couple of years, had a couple of good years at Cisco. Uh, Cisco, uh, as Esther, you know, is a, is a pretty large company. And sometimes you feel like you're getting lost <laughs> in the music when you're at Cisco. And um, I had an opportunity to join some of my old Tamburg folks again for a uh, a business in, at a, uh, that they were starting up at Econo. So this is the first time I actually started from ground zero revenue um, to build a business. And 
we quickly, in a couple of years, built a business up to 50 million or so. And once again, Cisco was uh, knocking on our door and uh, they bought Econo. So there was the next exit. And uh, so I worked again for Cisco for a few years and uh, winded up my career leaving Cisco again to go work with my old friends from the Jet Tamberg, Econo days and uh, worked for a company called Jazz Network, which was cybersecurity. And that's, I, I retired while I was at cyber, uh, Jazz Network. So, so that's kind of a real quick overview of how I got to where I was. And, uh, but th- there's a lot more to the story, but that just gives you kind of a chronological view of what it looked like. Thank you, Larry, for providing us that, uh, that insight into your really illustrious career. I'm very interested by, uh, by lots of things you said, but <laughs> in particular, you said that when, when you started selling, you knew that you wanted to stay in sales, that you just knew. Can I ask what that moment was where the, where the penny dropped and you knew this is for me? Well, you know, if you're a competitive, I was a pretty competitive person my whole life. And, uh, you know, it, it's it's going to sound too simple to be true, but it's it's actually true. The first time I got to ring the bell after making my first sale. And um, I knew I this, this was something that, that I wanted to do. Uh, believe it or not, before I got that first sale, I probably got rejected like 20 times. <laughs> you're selling over the phone and you're just calling people and they're hanging up on you and they're telling you, don't bother me. And, when I finally got somebody to listen to me and hear my whole script and then hang up on me and they said, okay, well, send me some books. Then I flipped out. I just thought that was the greatest feeling in the world. And so sales is about winning. And if you're really uh, competitive and you like to win at something, uh, you, you can't be in a better environment than a sales environment. And, and from that moment, I knew that I, I I wanted to be in sales. Now, what I also knew is that I wanted to be really good at it. And so I needed to learn as much as I could about what the science of selling was, what the process of selling was. But from the moment that I got my first sale and got to ring a bell and have everybody, you know, clap and, and, and believe it or not, they had these little boiler room <laughs> offices where you had like 30 people and you got this bell going off every, you know, 10 minutes. Um, it was pretty exciting for me. So that was how we knew. Um, and then when I started studying the science of sale, it came easy to me to, to understand what that process was. And so that just kind of validated that I had made the right decision. Nice. Nice. And, and if you will, what what did you do to study the science of sales? Like, what did you, what books were you reading? What did you look up? Yeah, it's interesting. I didn't go to external books. The companies that I, the companies that I worked for actually had all these all the sales information, Time Life libraries. They had to, lots and lots of sales books or sales data that you could go and look and learn what the science of selling was. And then when I joined the insurance company, you know, they took, they sent me away for six weeks, <laughs> you know, where all they did was train you on selling. And then they gave you lots of books. So there was no, it's it. I hear a lot of people talk about books that they read that, that really carried them over. It, for me, I was very fortunate that I, I came up in a time when corporations actually spent a lot of time training and think about this. I went to Bell Atlantic, 
from my first tech. Once again, go away for six weeks, be trained, get, get all of this expertise. So it was very fortunate for me that I, you know, I didn't have to learn on my own. I had structured classrooms that taught me the art of selling um, and taught me that it wasn't about having a great personality and it wasn't about, you know, being able to have fun talking to people. There were things you had to do to be successful. And uh, I'm glad I learned that when I was at a young age. It certainly sounds like you were very keen to be a student, you know, whilst working and, and, and smashing sales targets, you, you still had that hunger to learn and, and improve. And in keeping with that theme, Larry, but just shifting the focus slightly, I'm really keen to understand your perspective um, on mentoring, um, specifically what has been the, per- the, the kind of role of mentoring in your career, whether that be as a mentor or as a mentee? Yeah, I, yeah, I've done the mentoring a lot. And, uh, you know, the, the obvious reason that you mentor is, is that you want to give back some of the things that you've learned and help someone else, as, you know, as you've been helped. That's pretty obvious. But selfishly, uh, when you decide to be a mentor, it's because you think you know something that's special and that you can give that to someone else. So, so secretly you're validating that what you know is really special, especially if the person that you're mentoring, the mentee, uh, achieves some success behind some of the things that you've given them guidance on. So mentoring kind of helps you validate the things that you're doing, but it also helps the mentee um, learn a whole lot of, of, about things that you've learned before and that you think are very important to them continuing on a successful path. So I, I think mentoring is fantastic. I think anytime you can get guidance from somebody that's done it and that somebody that feels confident that their information um, is special and it's important and they deliver that information to you as a mentee, um, I don't think you can go wrong. It might not be a fit all the time, but you're still getting some good guidance um, uh, during the process. So I, I love the fact that we have mentors and that we have mentees. And um, I think that it ultimately enhances a person's ability to make better decisions if the mentor and the mentee have a really good relationship and a really good communication path. Makes complete, complete sense. You know, um, one of the things you mentioned too was um, the importance of, um, you know, having that clear communication, because if you think about the mentor relationship, think of all of that knowledge and that all that training you've experienced, those years of, you know, getting rejected and seeing wins, you've kind of gone through a filtration system and can synthesize that from that experience, right? Um, and so you're, you're almost like a walking encyclopedia or a walking book of an experience to then be able to filter that to somebody that, Hey, I'm, I'm getting ready to experience these things. What can, what can I go through? Hey, don't go through the, you know, 40 years I did here. Let me kind of synthesize it for what you specifically need. That's the power of, of how you describe mentorship. Yeah. And think about it, Esther. I mean, you, if you're a mentor, if you agree to be a mentor, you know, you got a little bit of an ego and you're probably a pretty confident person because you think what you're telling someone is really going to 
make them better. You don't want to, you don't want to give them things that you did wrong. You want to give them things right. And you know that validates it. And if they do some of those things, and it turns out that it works for their career, that kind of really gives you a special feeling. I'd love to get your perspective on the. Um, I, I call it the other side of mentorship, but from a leader, a people leader perspective. And, um, you know, we often, Kieran and I often talk about that mentorship is really scaled or, or your culture is really scaled through mentorship happening within your organization, right? So um, others within your team kind of peer to peer supporting and coaching and developing each other really helps scale leadership. Ha- have you seen that? And have you seen examples um, throughout your career through different organizations you've had where that, you know, maybe is true or isn't true? Yeah, I think, um, I think it's totally true. Um, let me say that first, that as a, a leader of people, especially as a leader of salespeople, um, and I like to narrow my focus always on sales leadership because yeah, I, I really had less interest in other things. And I was pretty myopic about focusing on sales folks. Um, mentorship within the sales community uh, is, is extremely strong because sellers are always looking for a way to be better. And so they look to their peers and there's no, there's no sense of, oh, I'm not good enough or, I don't want to follow what that person's doing. Anybody that's making money at sales, right, is automatically a mentor to the other sellers. Sellers are always looking at you, seeing what you do, watch how you approach uh, the business. And as a leader of salespeople, all eyes are on you all the time in terms of what you do, what you say, how you say it. Um, the, how you position things when you're talking about uh, talking to customers. It's just easy for sellers to say, okay, I'm going to try that because anything that can help me remember every time a seller is successful, it's chain. There's money. When a seller is not successful, there's no money. But when the successful, he or she is successful, there's money at the end of that rainbow. So for me to look out, and see that Esther tried X, Y, Z, hmm, I'm going to do that. So I always brought my sellers together and let them tell some of the success stories that they had because those success stories are, are, are really um, uh, mentorship um, to, to the sales folks. So I always want them that. What was the process? What did you do? Tell us when you ran into a glitch and how you overcame it. Let the other sellers know. And, other, and, you know, one thing about the sales profession is that sellers typically are really open to learning and, and mentorship because it does you mean money and it means money in a quick way. Understanding your views and perspective regarding mentorship is has, incredible. I'm also keen to understand your thoughts on sponsorship. Is this something that you advocate? Is this something that you've experienced yourself? Yeah. Um, do I advocate sponsorship? A hundred percent. I've been sponsored seven times in my career. And I, and, and, you know, you don't forget when you've been sponsored. Um, 
you know, I don't think you forget your mentors, but the sponsors, you know, really, really, really stay, stick with you. The, the challenge with sponsorship um, is that, especially for, for diverse uh, individuals, they don't get a chance to take advantage of it as much um, as others. I, I was very fortunate. You know, I've been sponsored seven times. That's a lot of times to be sponsored. And well, what a sponsor does is lay their reputation on the line to get you into a position uh, that you're trying to get to. And um, a sponsor makes it happen. A sponsor, in you know, a mentor can give you guidance on the side and do and show you the ways to prepare yourself for some things. But a sponsor actually goes in to a decision maker and says, that's the person you ought to take. And they do that. And the only way they do that because they really believe in you, because remember, a sponsor, they they're putting you in. They're helping to put you in a role. And, and if you fail at that role, then they lose some credibility as well. So they got to really trust you. And um, so I've been you know, fortunate enough, you know, that uh, all through my career, uh, there were sponsors that, uh, you know, said, hey, you need to take this guy. And, and quite frankly, you know, I always delivered for my sponsors. So they got additional credibility because they sponsored me. And um, I got the role and I got what I wanted because they sponsored me. So it was, a, it was very mutual. The challenge with sponsors is that it it does make the playing field uneven. Because if I've got sponsors and you don't, I'm going to win, you know, and and that's not always fair. OK, it's not always fair because you might be better. You might be smarter. You might have more. You, you might actually have more uh, achievements than I have. Uh, but if you don't have that sponsorship, you're going to probably lose. And so it does make the playing field uneven, but I can't deny the impact it's had on my career. So it's, you know, kind of of a double-edged sword there. I have feelings of goodness and I love my sponsors over the years for doing what they did. But at the same time, I always say, you know, you know, it did help make that playing field uneven and and you know what i'm i'm happy i'm because because ultimately i benefited from it so you just you gotta you know you take it and you take the good and the bad but i think that uh if you can get a sponsor if you can get some folks who have some power within an organization to believe in you and take a risk in you that may be one of the most important things you can do in your career. So true. We always, Kira and I talk about this often, um, the importance of sponsorship and, you know, anyway, I'll let you ask the, the question, Kira. Well, <laughs> you read my mind. Um, so it's actually, um, this is exactly, yeah, Esther and I talk about this so often because whilst we clearly see the benefits of sponsorship, it's not something that is um, kind of bedded in, to all industries, to all companies. And so exactly what you said, Larry, you have some individuals that have that advantage over others. So I guess the next question is, how can sponsorship become normalized in your opinion? 
Well, here, here's how I, th- you know, here's how I think it ought to happen. Um, when you sponsor uh, corporations, you know, that are large and even small corporations or mid-sized, medium-sized corporations, when you're in a, a startup, sponsorship isn't so important because everybody's just running and hard and, you know, no one has time to listen to anybody, you know, tell them somebody else is good or bad. But corporations, sponsors should be responsible enough to say, this person is damn good. This person has achieved this level of success. You look at this person's resume and they deserve the role. You know, the question is who deserves a role more? Um, Well, the person who gets it deserves it more. You know, and so what ends up happening is all sponsors don't sponsor people who necessarily have the qualifications to be in a role. And I think that if we, if corporations can lay out some clear criteria for sponsors and say, Hey, look, if you want to come into a room and, and, and put somebody in a position of where they're going to be leading people, make sure that they meet some basic criteria. And that basic criteria has to include being successful in the sales and in, in the, in the sales environment. Think about it this way. If a person's making their number every year, if a person's, you know, uh, overachieving on their number, and, you know, Esther, we talk about this. This is, this is not something that's intangible. In sales, you either are or you aren't, right? You either are good or you're not. And so you, a sponsor should be responsible and sponsor the person who is really achieving the results. And, um, I, you know, in my case, they did. They were, <laughs> I was achieving and I earned it and, and I feel good about it. But I've seen cases where they don't. And so you, you want to make sure that a, that a sponsor is, is, is recommending and pushing a person who in fact have, has had proven success. Someone who has made their numbers, someone who, who can look over a record of achievement that is better than most people. And then you go with that. Yeah. So I, th- I think corporations can do that, you know, you know, because in some respects, sponsorship is, you know, that closed door room where things get said and unsaid. And there's only, whether well, there's only a few people in that room where all that happens. Right. So, you know, it can be, uh, something that drives the good old boy network in a way that's not fair. All right. But if you are really, um, serious about sponsorship, you would, you, you've got to make that sponsor tell a story about the individual that they're sponsoring that says they've been achieving success. They're very good. And you got to be respectful of challenges that come to that. Right. You got, you know, someone else might say, well, that's fine and dandy, but you don't know this person and look at their record. And let's do a side by side and see who really deserves a job. So you got to have some of those some boundaries around sponsorship. So it's not just a good old boy network uh, placing people when they want to. Are you in sales or looking to start a career in sales? Join our community at growth.co. 
For those looking to hire, let us help you build your talent bench. Create a profile at growthq.co. You know, as uh, you know, seeing and experiencing a sales career myself and, um, you know, being in the top 1% and while it's great and people want to attach themselves to your brand and a lot of people have um, opened doors for me personally in my career, um, I've been incredibly fortunate to have some great sponsors. Um, I've also, with or without those sponsors, also seen the uncomfortable thing of unconscious bias. I have it. Kieran has it. You've got it. Everyone has unconscious bias. The actual thing of unconscious bias isn't wrong. It's human nature. It's like air. But recognizing it and putting in systems to be able to um, kind of get past it so that you bring everyone's unconscious biases in a room together to get to the best result, right? Like, I mean, when you think about that, um, that's the whole point of uh, diversity and equity and inclusion is bringing everybody's bits together, everybody's unconscious biases together to um, to get to a really good result. Um, from, from the many teams that you've had that have been incredibly successful, where have you seen um, times where you've had to remove, you've noticed there's been either groupthink or unconscious bias kind of stopping or blocking that success? Where have you seen, um, you know, way, or what ways have you tried to remove that? Um, and in particular, maybe even bringing talent into your team through interviewing. Yeah, you, the one thing that I do with my teams, and, and we religiously did this, is that uh, we try to, this unconscious bias is so prevalent in during the hiring process that you have to set up some guidelines and some, and some guideposts on, on what is going to be acceptable, right? So the one thing that I always tell my teams, we're, when we're out hiring and bringing new people into our, our group, they have to, you, ha- you have to fact check and make sure that they have achieved what they say they have achieved. Um, you know, unconscious bias uh, can't overcome the fact that a person maybe doesn't make their number or the person actually isn't as successful as they present themselves to be. And, and it means that you have to go the extra step when you're hiring. You got to check references. You got to go back and find as much information as you can about the folks that you're doing. I think it's really important because remember the best hires when you, you know, hiring is what makes you successful. It, it's your team that makes you successful. And if you're not focused on making sure that your team is a team of individuals who are, who have been performing at a high level, uh, all through their career, then you're going to fail because you're, you're not, you know, all great. You're, you're just a, a function of how great your team is. And so if you can impress upon your team, like if you're managing managers, like I've managed managers and managed individual contributors, if you're managing managers, impress upon them. This don't, don't slough off and, and not do the work, put the work in. To, to, to check out the people that you're bringing into this team. And if you're focused on that, it makes your unconscious biases kind of go away a little bit. Doesn't, doesn't clear it, but it does make it, make it go away a little bit. I, um, 
I tell a story. Uh, when I was a salesperson, I had a manager um, and, you know, I wasn't taking a lot of folks out to lunch, my customers. I didn't take my customers to lunch. I didn't take my customers to ball games. I didn't take my customers to, to all of these entertainment venues because um, back when I was selling, you know, uh, most of the decision makers um, didn't look like me and they weren't as comfortable going out to all these little social things with me at that time. Um, lots changed since then, but back then it was a little less of that. And, uh, and my manager, one of the things that he thought he was going to measure me on was he, was, he used to come to me and say, you don't have any expenses. You don't take any customers out. You're not doing this. You're not doing that. I said, well, I, yeah, I don't take them to lunch, but I'm in their office at lunchtime. Okay. I don't take them to lunch because I don't, the, the, the small talk between us isn't great. But when I'm in front of them, I'm, they're getting what they want from me. They're getting what they want. They're getting an understanding of the solution. I'm framing the solution in a way that they can see the benefit to their company. So I'm with them at lunchtime. I'm just not out in there joking and drinking and having fun. Now, I wish I could be that sales guy that could get by doing it that way. But I always found that I had to have a little bit more credibility. And so... I always instructed that manager, you know, at the end of the day, you're you're being critical of my lack of expenses, but I'm still your number one guy. Okay, so at the end of the day, what are you like? And, you know, as crazy as that manager was, he, he he always appreciated that I was still the number one guy because at the end of the month, he was always at my desk. Going, can we get that other deal in? So it, it's it's important that you train people on what other things they need to look at. Um, and and it's always in sales. It's always the numbers. Did you make them or 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 not? You know, let's not play around and call it anything else. You might be nice. You might be kind. You might be all these other things. But it comes back to the number, and you need to really uh, you know train your sales team when they're looking at bringing people into the team, just look at the numbers. Don't get confused by anything else. You know, they, they may tell a great story, but don't don't get confused by it. Look at their production. So whilst we're talking about bringing people into the team, Larry, what's your experience and, and, and what's your opinion on um, diverse interview panels? You know, what, what experience have you had with them on either side of the coin? And and really, what are, what are your takeaway points from them? Well, interview panels are interesting. Uh, you know, um, uh, Cisco and Dell, which are really large companies, are the only companies that I've ever worked for that did interview panels. You know, literally, you know, Six or seven individuals uh, having an interview, and most of the, most of the interview panels that I participated in were functional panels. You know, they took leaders from from the accounting group, leaders from operations, leaders from sales, leaders from the different functional organizations. They weren't diverse panels; they were just. I mean, they were diverse. Let me get me wrong. They're diverse, diverse by function, not by you know uh, just. Uh, uh, people in general. Um, and, you know, 
interview panels by function, you know, I, I, I quite frankly think they're a waste of time. If you're a sales leader, my interview panel is going to be all salespeople. Now, I may diversify it because I have different salespeople who use different approaches, but I don't see a whole lot of value in non-salespeople interviewing my salespeople. That's just something that I've, I found important. Now, I understand that they have to get along with the rest of the people in the company, but if they can sell, they'll find a way to get along with the rest of the people in the company because they're bringing revenue into the business. I don't worry too much about that. Um, I have never participated in a diverse, one of the things that Esther's doing that I really love is this whole idea of diverse interview panels. I've never participated in an interview panel that was purposely diverse in terms of men, women, and people of color on purpose to look at a crew. I, I think that's a, you know, if, if I'm in sales, I'm still going to have all salespeople, but there'll be that, but there'll be a diverse group of people, but they'll all be salespeople. Um, but uh, I think that's a, such a great and powerful uh, idea because it, you know, people are looking for how to have more diverse sales teams out there, you know, uh, because the studies show that diverse sales teams win more and, and sell more. And so, and because you get different experiences from the different people. And so you're not going to get it unless you have a diverse panel of people doing the interview. You know, as a sales leader, as a black man, I, yeah, I'm doing the interview. And so I'm going to have my unconscious bias and I'm likely going to hire a more diverse team. But if I wasn't, it would be great that I had a panel of folks that would, would join me in, in that, in that experience. But I, I never saw one in my days. And, mm-hmm. and it's, it's not as, um, it's not as prevalent. Um, you know, only now are you seeing <clears throat> examples like the Intel study where um, they implemented it as a requirement, right? Diverse interview panels where um, entry employees were, um, you know, any interview, any interview processes had to have, uh, have gender diversity or racial diversity um, in, in the process. And, and Intel saw the results of it. Um, and so other companies are starting to, to jump on board. Like you, you've mentioned a couple others that are starting to jump on board, but it isn't as prevalent. Right. And I think the major thing that comes up and I feel at times for the hiring managers or talent acquisition is often access, right? Because um, while once you get into the job of sales, it is an incredibly dollar-driven, binary, very clear ones and zeros type role. But getting in is the part that's subjective. Um, And it gets really difficult to be able to um, clearly master who's good or who's not so great. Um, if if the subjective nature of qualifying that person only comes from a small, um, from really one demographic, right? So, um, yeah, we're we're seeing that you know companies are starting to get a lot more interested in it, and then um, excited to see how GrowthQ starts to be a part of helping helping companies get there. Um, okay, we could talk for ages. I like I just 
I'm so many notes. Like I could show you my notes right now. I have so many notes. I'm sure anybody listening to this has a ton of questions. Um, <clears throat> but we always close out um, our session asking this important one because the title of this podcast is Dear Future CRO. And it's an opportunity for all of us to write that love letter to that future Larry that's out there um, that's probably listening to this right now that's earlier in their career or pivoting their career and saying, oh my goodness, how can I do what Larry did? Um, and so I'm going to leave this closing question to you, Larry, to finish this sentence. Dear future CRO, and what would your advice be, Larry? Uh, that's a good one. Um, I guess, you know, one of the things I would say is that, um, you know, to the CRO, remember the CRO, always remember that you are the senior sales leader in the company that you run. Um, you know, it's great to have this title of CRO. It means you're in the C-suite and it seems to have, have you know, turned you turned some CROs that I've met over the last five years. It's turned them into more of a bureaucrat than a sales leader. And I think to all future CROs, remember that you're a CRO because you were a great sales leader. And being a great sales leader is, is the first priority of the CRO. And so don't forget the things about sales leadership that are important. And that is building high performance teams, giving great sales coaching to the sales leaders and talking to the customers of your organization. These are really important to be a successful CRO. They're obvious if you're the sales leader. Sometimes they're not as obvious when you're at the level of CRO, but that's who you are. You are the top sales uh, person in the organization. So you have access to every customer that you all have. You have access to every top salesperson in the organization and Take advantage of it and, and learn and understand what's, what's working in your organization and what's not. Whew, I love that. Don't forget that you are the number one salesperson in the company. Don't let the title jade you. You are the seller. You are the top seller. The buck stops with you. Right. And go talk to your top salespeople and listen to them. Talk to your customers. Take advantage of who you are in the organization. You know, CRO, Chief Revenue Officer, sounds great, but you are, in fact, the top sales leader. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I love it. Larry Satterfield, thank you so, so much. So many nuggets. Kieran, we could have kept going. I know, I know. It was so insightful, but also incredibly empowering as well. Just listening to, as Esther said, it, uh, very, very powerful, just... Uh, could, could do another hour very easily. <laughs> <laughs> well, we thank you so much for taking this time with us. Thank you, Larry, for joining us as a guest. We hope to see you soon. Great. To all of our viewers, thank you for tuning in today. Please check out our platforms on Instagram, Spotify, iTunes, and YouTube. And don't forget to share, like, and subscribe. Esther and I hope to see you all very soon. Take care. We'll be